electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market side in the heart of Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight, the NVIDIA halo effect. The chip giant lifting broader markets. NASDAQ soars nearly 3%, biggest gain in over a year, just a tenth of a percent from a record close. S&P and Dow new records. Dow tops 39K for the first time. Were NVIDIA's results the green light for the rally to roll on? Plus, a record 34 years in the making. The Nikkei all-time high for the first time since 89. That's back when National Lampoon's mm. Christmas Vacation was tops of the box office. And Phil Collins Stop it. ruled the airwaves. A lot has changed since then, but one top investor says these stocks are actually cheaper now. Later on, restaurant stocks rally. A gold miner loses the shine, and Moderna melts up. Best day in a year. All those stories this hour. I'm Carl Quintanilla, in for Melissa Lee, live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Bono and Eisen, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Guys, what a day to be with all of you. Good to see you. CQ, you drew the short straw yet again, but we are thrilled to have you on this historic day. It is an amazing it is. day. We're going to start with that uh, massive post-earnings rally in NVIDIA. Shares surging more than 16% to a new record close. Stock adds more than $270 billion in market cap just today. That's bigger than the size of one whole B of A and the single biggest gain for any company on record. Now around $60 billion away from a $2 trillion market cap. It's added a trillion to its value since just last June. The gains today ripple effects across tech with the semis, Supermicro, AMD, Broadcom, Micron, Arm, all notching outsized gains. And the mega caps also seeing strength. Meta, Amazon, Microsoft, all 2% or more. Did NVIDIA justify the rally we've seen in these stocks and the broad market? Let's bring in Deepwater Asset Management's Gene Munster. Get some thoughts. Gene, a lot of uh, four-digit targets around today. You got any problem with that? I'm good with that, Carl. I think that we're going to see an excess of 1,000 probably a year, two years out here. But when I think about those price targets, I think it's important just to quickly step back and think about NVIDIA's business before we get too carried away, is it's a boom and bust business. In the three quarters prior to this AI liftoff, the business was down on average 17% a quarter. That wasn't, a, that, wasn't that long ago. The three quarters since then, of course, it's up 200% on average, which really the central question about those price targets comes down to what is NVIDIA's underlying growth? And I think uh, the answer to that question is uh, comes to uh, what do you think the outlook for AI is going to be? And I uh, started my comments on a sober point related to this boom and bust, this scarring effect that their businesses had on investors over the past five years. But uh, my view forward is that those uh, price targets are probably going to ultimately $1,000 plus prove to be conservative because AI is just that big of a deal. The one nugget from NVIDIA's call last night, inference, is 40% of, this, uh, of the GPU usage. That means that AI is actually being used. This is not hyperscalers building out infrastructure, crossing their fingers that something is going to come. We're already seeing adoption just a year into this, and we're at the very beginning. NVIDIA is going to benefit for this for a long time. 
Where does that leave those, though, who are still on the lookout for hyperscaler digestion, uh, shorter lead times, suggesting an eventual inventory correction, maybe one day? So what we saw with analyst estimates today, on average, they went up by about 20%. Uh, so actually, the valuation went down a little bit. But to answer that question is that most of the commentary from the sell side and investors has been that we're just pushing out this inevitable correction, this this bust moment that, of course, NVIDIA is going to have. It just can't be that good. And again, I, so to answer your question is most people have pushed the bust out to 2000 calendar 26. They think it's going to grow around 20% in calendar 25 and then 26 be a down year. I'll take the over on that. I think this is going to grow 15% or better. And it's hard to imagine that we're just at the start of everything that is uh, going to be this paradigm shift. But I do believe that. And I don't think the bus is going to come in 26. I think this can last. They're going to have a bus, but I think it's probably three to five years from now. The bus is going to be epic when it happens. But I think there's uh, plenty of room of upside until we get there. Hey, Gene, you know, kudos to you. You've been, you've been all over this thing and you've been steadfast on it. Um, but, you know, you just said something that's really interesting. And, and, you know, as I talk to other analysts and other folks who are, you know, tracking the gen AI space very closely, you know, we've gotten towards this inference phase. You just talked about how much, um, you know, NVIDIA is, is speaking to the usage right now. But doesn't that take much lower compute, right? So if you think of the first phase as a lot of these, um, you know, players in the space were training these models, the more inference we get, isn't it? <laughs> likely to demand less compute and therefore once we see better supply demand dynamics if there is a drop off in demand we might have that glut that you're talking about and that's potentially the sort of bust uh, the, the short answer is yes it, it would cause that if if you think these waves we just we're just going to have one wave an infrastructure wave the hyperscaler wave the ai startup wave that jensen talks about if this is the wave of AI, we're a quarter of the way through it, but it, we are going to have that less need for the GPUs because, like you said, inference requires less compute. If you believe that there's going to be an application wave, which is going to need more building around this and also more GPUs for inference, and what Jensen talks about, this heavy industry wave, I don't fully get this one, but he says that heavy industry is the largest opportunity. This is like big industry using generative AI. And the last, of course, is sovereign AI, which would be countries developing their own AI. If you believe that there are these four waves to it, then you're going to see this cycle continue where well, each wave starts to ramp. You're going to have a build out on infrastructure and then a dip down for inference to your point and then another build up. And so that's why this comes down to just a philosophical question that investors need to ask themselves. How much do you believe in AI? I think AI is a 99 out of 100. Electricity is 100. The Internet is 50. Mobile is 25. I think this is uh, we're just going to get going. That doesn't mean it's up and to the right for the next three years. There's going to be ups and downs in the market. But I think that this is that big of a structural change, and NVIDIA is going to benefit from that. In terms of metrics, there's a bit of a paradox here, Gene. And again, congratulations, because you've been on this. On one side, price, you know, earnings, in, look at the P.E. multiple at 31 times. It's more than reasonable, probably cheap, without question. The flip side of that coin is current valuation is trading 19 times ish revenue so something's got to give i understand it because they have 77 percent margins but one of two things is going to happen i think either margins are going to contract in a meaningful way which is going to ratchet down eps or you're not going to see i don't think maybe the growth in terms of revenue what am i looking at incorrectly or correctly or how long can this last i guess 
you're looking at it exactly like you should look at it. And the question comes down to this duration, duration of growth. And ultimately, uh, that event is going to happen. There's going to be a dark day when it comes to NVIDIA investing. I think it's three to five years out there. But what you just described is exactly what's going to happen. There's going to be a glut of inventory at a certain point. Pricing is going to go down. It will get hit, double hit. We're going to be back to all this, this uh, scar tissue that investors have had. I don't think we're near that point. I know it sounds like I'm talking out of both sides, but I think we still got a way to go. Gene, appreciate it. It's good seeing you. Uh, Gene, thank Munster, you. Talking some Nvidia kick off the hour. Guy, can can an investor ride these cycles? The answer is yes. Bonowin's done it, and other people on this desk over time have done it as well. I have not been one of those people, clearly, because this flies in the face of a lot of the things that I grew up in, and I still have the scars of 0809, and I'm sort of gun shy without question. The answer is yes. The flip side of that coin is. When is this going to take place, right? That's the rub. If you think this is two, three years out, then, yeah, you ride the wave. If you think these boom-bust cycles happen a lot faster, like I think I do, then you've got to be extraordinarily careful at these levels. We haven't really talked about China risk or what that does to data center, at least in the last quarter. Is it a lingering risk? Um, listen, I think China is always a lingering risk, only because like it's very idiosyncratic and and it it's it's whimsical. So, you know, we don't know necessarily what the politics are going to be coming in coming in November. So there's just like a lot of moving parts there that I think makes it very hard to quantify. Despite what China has been or has not been for them, you've seen the strength in the numbers. And I acknowledge what everyone else is saying in terms of there likely being a boom bust cycle. This is a hardware company, but I do think that there is like a bit of vertical integration that that allows them to diversify and get into more and your recurring revenue type of businesses. Think about Apple and services. You talk about like the data center services and how these people are going to need them to, to, to come, uh, you know, to come in, uh, service those centers, uh, add, you know, silicon kind of like um, customization around there. So I, I do think there are multi-prongs to the business. I understand in terms of Web3 and that boom bust cycle, I think that was much less tangible than this situation currently is. They're actually monetizing on this. And now you're seeing with the transition into, into inference, while there will be more competition, there is a use case that is presently Current, present at, at the moment. Yeah, and it is. And, and, and again, I think we have to kind of look out and see what's next. And, and today's, I mean, this stock barely saw a downtick today. I mean, like, it's truly extraordinary. So, Carl, you just said it, it's the largest market cap gain of any stock ever in a single day. That speaks to me to a mania. Now, I said that a week ago. I said it a month ago. But one thing that I've learned in my 25 years, I started in the business in 1997. I saw the Internet bubble inflate. And there was plenty of peaks and valleys in that whole period. You know, the S&P was skipping up basically 30% a year for five years until then the NASDAQ crashed and lost 80% over two years. And I'm not saying that we're on the cusp about anything like that. But we've seen the S&P now in the last two, you know, 25 years get cut in half on two times, right? So Guy just mentioned and the PTSD he has from the financial crisis, I still have it, believe it or not, from the dot-com because riding it up was really interesting. Watching a very long extended bear market for two and a half years was actually devastating for an investor's psyche in a way. And so all of that stuff speaks to me when I see what's going on right here. And you can say it's different because there's real profits and the way that this company is growing and the secular shift that's going to happen and how it's going to transform the economy and the global economy. But that's going to take time. And when Gene says, in three to five years, I say maybe three to five months or maybe three to five quarters, it's not going to be. There's going to be a bust before three years when I think of this. So I'm never going to get a, a, a mania like this on the upside, but I can assure you I'm never going to be writing it down the way a lot of retail investors do when they get the timing wrong on some of these sorts of trades. 
You a Fast Money fan, CQ? You can, you can lie and the say yes, you can be honest. yes. Yeah, well, that's false. <laughs> but on January 30th, we were in Florida, and AMD reported earnings. And I got to tell you something. It was not a great quarter, and the guidance wasn't particularly good. I think the stock that day closed at 172, traded down to 165 or so. Nothing has changed in that universe other than the fact you talk about the halo effect, I think, the way you started the show. So look at AMD now. It's a fantastic company without question. But the last couple of quarters haven't been particularly good, yet that's getting dragged up as well. So when other stocks are getting the benefits of these, again, halo effects and these ETFs and mutual funds, that's when you got to say, wait a second, you know, valuation is going to matter at some point, And with each passing day, I think it matters a little bit more. Yeah. That's a good point uh, on that. Our next guest does say that an increase in options activity following NVIDIA's earnings is just the beginning of changing investor interest. Let's bring in Mandy Zhu, uh, head of derivatives at the CBO. It's good to have you, Mandy. A lot of charts circulating this week about call volatility in NVIDIA separating from the NASDAQ VIX. Yep. What is that about? Well, what I found interesting this week in the lead up to NVIDIA is not just that NVIDIA volatility went up going to earnings, but actually had the halo effect in terms of dragging the other stocks as well. So average stock volatility this week actually went up. Um, and that was surprising or very unusual because we're almost through earnings season, right? So typically at this point in the earnings season, you'd expect volatility, stock volatility to uh, decline. Well, let me uh, let me have them just picture, Mike, uh, really quickly. I, I wonder what you, yeah. what you make of that, though, and sort of what, what it suggests about the market's uh, reliance on NVIDIA delivering the market. Yeah, and listen, I think that there, there was a couple things that were going on in the options market that kind of made it um, attractive to at least bet to the downside or protect your long positions. And we'll talk about that with a skew with Mandy a little bit without getting too technical. Um, but again, I would say this is that, you know, in a, an environment where we've had a 13 VIX, right, there's been so much concentration on a handful of names. You could say, well, defining my risk and playing with options is cheap in a 13 VIX. It has not been in NVIDIA, especially on the call side, Mandy. Like, can you speak to that a little bit? Because, we, you know, Guy and I were talking about this on the desk the other night. We were looking at, like, an equal percentage out-of-the-money call versus the out-of-the-money put, and the call was nearly 2x the price. Yeah. And usually that's the opposite. People will pay up for protection. Speak to that dynamic that was heading into the print here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the bid to the call side volatility, exactly to your point, skew, which measures demand for puts versus calls, actually became inverted in NVIDIA, which, you know, for a tech name, a high flyer, it's not that unusual. We, you know, see it sometimes going into earnings, but certainly I think inverted skew is a sign of just how bullish the sentiment had gotten in the name. Um, but again, taking a step back, it's not just NVIDIA. We see that, you know, very flat skew, that extreme high demand for calls across a number of names and single names right now. I think this speaks to the, the general bullish um, sentiment that investors have. Does so, that extend to small caps? Are we getting bullish activity in the Russell, for example? Yes. So what's interesting to me is that investors are so bullish tech, large cap, mega cap deck, in terms of what they're holding in terms of stocks. But what they're using options to play is a potential broadening out of that rally away from the mega cap tech names towards the small cap. So we're seeing it in Russell index options, for example, a huge surge in upside call volume. Uh, skew and Russell actually got inverted recently, which is even more unusual. You have to go back 20 plus years to see the last time index skew became inverted when calls were trading at higher volatility than puts. Is that interesting on a, on a, t- a time where we're no longer talking about rate cuts as much? Yeah, it is because of where we are in the cycle. So you talked about the inverse skew or smile. We saw the similar type of situation with uh, Bank of America and Citigroup, but that was after those had absolutely collapsed. So in, you, you, could, you could actually argue that there was asymmetric risk to the upside. Here, I'm with you. It feels a bit extended in terms of continuing to play. I would say the other side of 
side of that coin is I do think that bodes better for the retail investor because as opposed to continuing to pile into the stocks, they are in fact defining their risk. And if they are going to take bets that might be a little bit long in the tooth, they're at least doing it in a defined way. Mandy, to the extent that you can want to answer this, what effect do these zero data expiry options have either on the dampening of the overall volatility or the enhancement of? I think it's a dampening, but I'm curious as to what your thoughts are. So that's a great question and a very common question that we're getting. And I think a lot of times when people look at the impact of zero day options on the market, they focus on the gross volume, right? So like 500 billion a day trade in these products. Of course, they must have an impact. But what really matters in terms of impact on the market, impact on the VIX or on volatility in general, it's the breakdown in that flow, right? If the flow is very evenly balanced, there's actually very little hedging that market makers have to actually do on the back of that option flow. And what we see at SIBO, again, all SPX options trade at SIBO, what we see is that it's very balanced between buys versus sells because investors, both retail and institutional, are actually finding a diverse set of use cases for these options. So it's not just speculating, it's not just FOMO, what we saw during the pandemic, people were actually selling these options for yield, right? Selling call spreads, put spreads. So you do get good two-way uh, traffic in these flows, and that's why it's so balanced. Mandy, we'll talk some China next time. Thanks yes. for coming in. Good to see you. Thank you. I'm Andy Shu. So talk about some ideas, uh, Bonowin, coming out of that discussion. Let's trade it. Well, listen, she mentioned there's a spread between, I believe, uh, small caps and the S&P as well as the single stocks versus S&P. I don't think that you I would be a better seller of options post earnings. I don't think that that situation can can continue. But when you get moves like you get today, it, it kind of justifies it in the extreme short term. What I think you do is you probably move out a week or a month and you give yourself a little bit more time for the decay to, to kind of rot those options. You, know, you mentioned the small caps, Carl. The Russ, the IWM measured through the IWM made an all time high. I think it was November 2021. If you look at it over the last year and a half, two years, this 205 level, you can throw a chart up and see. I mean, that's been resistance now since April, I think, of last year, if not longer. For whatever reason, small caps are not validating this move in the broader market. There are a number of reasons why. None of them matter necessarily. But the small caps, I think, are telling you something about the underlying economy here. And not in a good way. I don't believe so. What do you think? No, I mean, like, think about the underperformance that we saw today. Guys highlighting this right now, and I think it speaks to the fact that you know the reliance on you know credit and the reliance on cost of capital, the the, the quality of their balance sheets and the like here. And just look at it again, like it, the money that's flowing into the stories that are working right now. I just think it becomes that much more acute this concentration. So you're going to keep hearing these, you know, these you know these comparisons, the Nifty 50 or other periods. At some point, it's going to matter, and I'll tell you why it's going to matter because it's always mattered. Like at some point. You know, you know what I'm saying? So it's not different this time. It's just from a matter of where it happens. And so that's why I think when an NVIDIA or a Microsoft or an Apple or these five names that are making up more and more of the S&P 500, and it's not just the weight within these indexes. It's actually the earnings contribution. One of the things that we learned about this earnings period is that there's a whole host of sectors that actually were under earning. You know what I mean? So we have a reliance on the weight in the index and then also their contribution to the earnings. You have any problem really quick before we go? where they're overlaying NVIDIA with Cisco and back in the day? I don't, because psychology is psychology. And so you can say, and you can be surgical about it, well, this company is so much more profitable, and they have so much, but they have the same customer concentration. They're funding their companies. They're buying their product. It's the same stuff again and again and again. It's going to wind down differently, but it will wind down, I can assure you. 
Coming up tonight, after hours, uh, action in block, uh, Live Nation and Carvana shares moving in decidedly opposite directions. We're going to dive into the earnings reports behind the moves next. Plus, a golden buzzkill, Newmont Mining closing in on a five-year low today. We'll dig into the miners' disappointing performance after this. You're watching Fast Money here on CNBC. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. We have an earnings alert. Shares of Block surging in extended trading. Company reports a surprise profit for the latest quarter. Let's get to our Kate Rooney for more. Hey, Kate. Hey there, Carl. Yeah, the stock is really reacting to the higher profit forecast for Block. It's focused on cost cutting and getting leaner has been paying off. Executives say that's going to continue into 2024. On the call just now, CFO Amrita Ahuja says they expect gross profit growth of about 15% year over year. They intend to exceed their initial guidance Helping the stock block raised its full-year profit guidance by more than $200 million. Revenue grew 24%. That was stronger than expected. Thanks in part, thanks to a surge in Bitcoin revenue. If you strip out Bitcoin, revenue was up closer to 15%. Adjusted EPS came, in, came up short. That was thanks to a $132 million impairment charge around Block's investment in Tidal. That's Jay-Z's music streaming service that Square bought back in 2021. In a nod to title on the earnings call, there was a Beyonce song playing in the waiting room. You don't see that every day on earnings calls. It's usually kind of elevator music, smooth jazz. But anyway, CFO Amrita Huja told me that the title and that write down, she said it reflects our latest thinking about the landscape in the broader streaming industry, which informs the current value of that asset. But she says it doesn't change their long-term vision and strategy for that company. Cash app revenue, meanwhile, was up 25%. The seller business grew 18%. And then volumes for buy now, pay later were up 25% thanks to a strong holiday shopping season. Carl, back to you. Uh, maybe uh, Jack Dorsey chose some of the hold music there, Kate. We'll see. Uh, let's, <laughs> exactly. let's trade it. Uh, Guy, we have some, we've had some uh, upgrades of uh, Block yeah. lately, uh, basically pricing leverage, maybe more involvement from Dorsey. Correctly so, by the way. And the, mar- the, the number that I take away, the margin improvement year over year is staggering in a word. So the question is, where does it go? So it's up big in the after hours. You go back and look at a chart. I mean, valuation-wise, you can wrap your head around this one. It's not... 2021 square and was a $270 stock, but it is a modern day one, which valuation is reasonable. 
This has room to 85. Now, if that sort of floats your boat, I think there's room left in the stock despite this run. It's had difficulties in that area a couple times over the last few years. Yeah, so first year of uh, gap profitability last year. This year, obviously, they're getting some leverage on some of these cost cuttings. And, and so the ability to guide up two quarters in a row like that is pretty impressive. This is a company expected to grow low teens revenue growth, 35% gross margin business. You know, not great, right? So it's going to actually trade. You know, if you look at the out year next year, trading about, you know, 17 times or so, it's actually not getting the sort of multiple that we were expecting out of these sorts of companies um, a few years ago. So it's probably pretty reasonable. I'm not buying it up, you know, 10%. Here. What do you think, Ronald? Uh, listen, I, I still think at 22, 23 times, I, it's, it's still reasonable. And the thing that stuck out to me was the fact that buy now, pay later didn't have to make up room for cash app. You had growth in both areas. And I think that's what surprised investors to the upside. Another earnings alert for you tonight. Live Nation reporting a huge revenue beat, topping estimates by more than a billion dollars. Shares just turned positive in the last few moments. Our Julia Borston watching that one. Hey, Julia. Yeah, Live Nation reporting a massive revenue beat fueled by a more than billion dollar beat in concert revenues. Shares did initially dip after hours. The company's adjusted operating income was a bit light with concerts posting a bigger than expected operating loss despite that revenue beat. The company also did not report an earnings per share figure for the fourth quarter. Now, Live Nation is sharing a very strong outlook for this year on the earnings call right now and in its release saying ticket sales in the first month and a half of this year are up 6%, noting strong demand across all price points and saying that there is a growing show pipeline with confirmed shows for large venues up double digits with growth led by arenas and amphitheaters. Now, there was no specific guidance on the bottom line, but CEO Michael Rapino saying he, quote, expects profitability to compound by double digits over the next several years. Now, as for the Department of Justice antitrust inquiry into the company, uh, the leadership said on the call just now, quote, we continue to answer any questions they have. They control the timing and will watch it play out, but don't have any specific updates. We're going to have an exclusive interview with Live Nation CEO Michael Rapino. That's coming up tomorrow on CNBC in the 1 p.m. Eastern hour in the exchange. Back over to you, Carl. Julie, appreciate that. Guys, did a comment on the consumer's uh, demand for experiences? No doubt. I mean, concerts up 44% year over year. I haven't been to a concert since, I think, you know, I think Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, like circa 96-ish. Mm. But that's me. I'll say this, though. This level 97 has been resistance a bunch of times. This is where we failed in the summer of 2022. But you know what? This quarter might be enough to sort of get it through there. I think you can stay long. This is a Karen Feinerman name, by the way. I think you like live music maybe more than I do. Listen, I thought they were going to take a, a gain on, on my uh, Pearl Jam spring and, and fall tour because <laughs> yeah. I just got lit up on there. Um, no, I mean, listen, I, I think your point about the experiences, that, that is the story. And I think it's going to, you know, the behavior did switch post-pandemic. So to me, these guys are in a good spot. There's a lot more fast to come tonight. Here's what's coming up next. Striking gold or striking out? Newmont hitting its lowest level in nearly five years as a rocky earnings report takes the shine off this mining stock. We'll grab our picks and shovels to debate if the company can dig itself out of this hole. Next. Plus, how about a trip to Japan? The country's flagship index hitting a historic high today. We'll find out what's behind the major move and where one top expert thinks the world's fourth largest economy is headed next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, 
packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. You got a buzzkill on Newmont tonight. Shares slipping more than 7.5% after reporting results today. Company posts a beat on the top and the bottom line, but cuts the dividend. Miner also says it's divesting eight non-core operations. Company did acquire Newcrest in November as it aims to focus on so-called Tier 1 assets, now falling to its lowest level since May of 2019. Remarkable. I mean, think about this for a second. The stock market's effectively at an all-time high. Gold within $100 is at an all-time high-ish right? I mean, we can debate that. Here's a stock that's probably one-third of its all-time high made 13 years ago. So what do you point your finger at? You have to point your finger at management, not run particularly well. And gold miners historically haven't been run particularly well. However, if you think that gold's going to continue to go higher, which I do, and at some point the underlying equities will catch up, these stocks, all of them collectively are just too cheap here, Carl. You're a fan of the commodity as well? Uh, the commodity, for sure. I mean, I was nodding my head because, yeah, I mean, the irony that gold is at essentially an all-time high and this company can't seem to get it together. With that said, I think that, that this is a mismanaged asset but not an impaired asset, right? So I, I think there's probably a buying opportunity here. Um, as you're pointing out, G is, is part of my trade here, go. so I'm, I'm bullish the, uh, the underlying commodity. Um, but I, I, I just think that I just think that there's a it can't get cheaper. I just don't know how things can possibly get worse. You all have acronyms of your own. What would oh, yours yeah. be? I, I'm not going to put you on the spot. Think about it in the commercial <laughs> break. But yes, we all do. Okay. Some of us played the game correctly. Others not so less much. So. Less so. Still to come tonight, restaurants in rally mode, but uh, how soon could we see obesity drugs start to weigh on that trade? How fast food could become fit food after this? Plus, we're going to party like it's 1989, Japan's flagship index with a historic high today. We'll take a trip across the Pacific to find out more about the country's recent resurgence in a minute. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks ripping higher today on the back of NVIDIA's blowout earnings. Dow up nearly 500 points, turning in its best day since December. S&P up more than 2% to a fresh all-time high, best day since last January. And the Nasdaq ending the day up nearly 3% higher, just 16 points from a new record close. Speaking of all-time highs, Meta, Costco, Hilton, Visa, Berkshire, all joining NVIDIA at some new records. And some after-hours action tonight. Carvana soaring, missed on the top and the bottom line, but some upbeat guidance and Booking holdings lower despite beating earnings and revenue estimates, announcing an $8.75 per share dividend. Meantime, stocks in Japan soaring to levels not seen since the late 80s. The Nikkei closing in at an all-time high on Tuesday, surpassing its last record set in December 1989. And while the index there is up nearly 45% in the last year, our next guest thinks investors should approach Japan with some caution from here. David Harrow, portfolio manager at Harris Associates, also manages the firm's Japan strategy. David, it's great to have you. Can you talk a bit about what's different today than it was in 1989? Well, there are some major differences. Uh, in 1989, it was really, by the way, this was the last trading day of the year. And Japan was experiencing what we'd call a bubble economy and bubble markets. Price earnings ratio, 70 times. Price to book ratio of the Nikkei, five times. 
uh, it was just a very expensive liquidity driven market. Um, and but there were two. One other similarity to today, of course, was the exchange rate. Uh, today, the yen's at one fifty to the uh, dollar. Nineteen eighty nine, it was about one forty five. Those things were all very similar. One other, one other similarity. The return on equity of an average Japanese stock in 1989 was around seven or eight percent. Today, just around eight, eight and a half percent. But the big difference is the valuations are lower. The Nikkei's at 20 times versus 70. It's at a little over two times book versus what was five times book. But that stubborn return on equity, the profitability of a Japanese company remains the same. The rest of the world has had 15 to 20% return on equity. Japan's still just seven or eight. So the market has been devalued. It took all this time since 1989 to reach where it was trading, but we still haven't seen a change in profitability. And this is the issue still with Japanese equities. David, I'm glad you brought up the dollar yen. So 150 here went from 151 down to 140, back to 150 over the course of the last couple of months. If you're long Japanese equities, you want to remain long. What are you rooting for for the currency? Continued weakness, or is there some point of diminishing marginal returns there? Yes, it's a good question because there are two Japanese markets. There's the export sector, the foreign-facing, the foreign currency earners that love, love a weekend. Recall. In 2011, spring of 2011, around the time of the earthquake tsunami, the yen was at around 75, 76. So it's a massive devaluation. And in the last two or three years, we went from around 100 to 150. Big devaluation. And this is one of the things that has propelled, especially the Japanese export sector. Now, if the Japanese monetary authorities decide to formally abandon their weak, weak money and more monetary normalization. What you would see is a flip in the participation from the exporters to the domestic-oriented businesses, which will benefit from a stronger yen. So if they switch a monetary policy to more monetary normalization, which we've seen in the West, you would probably see a very positive impact on the domestic stocks, which have suffered during this yen devaluation, and you'd see a more negative impact on the exporters. You'd see a rotation if they do adapt a more normalized monetary policy, which many think will happen. David Bono here. Thanks for being with us. A quick question for you. So you focused on like the import and export divergence there. Um, what do you think it will take to see follow through on uh, ROE or other type of return metrics uh, the, around the perceived um, focus on corporate government, corporate governance, and shareholder value. So this has been improving. And it started with Abe uh, in 2012, 2013, 2014. He had the three arrows. One of the arrows was improved corporate governance. And what this means is better shareholder representation, smaller boards. Japanese companies used to have massive amounts of cross-shareholdings, relationship holdings, and they'd hold each other's shares. So if something happened to one of them, you'd literally see a circling in the wagons and they'd get protected. So this was not necessarily conducive to building shareholder value. Now, there's pressure. There's some pressure. Pressure by the Tokyo Stock Exchange, as an example. Institutional shareholders 
putting on some pressure for these companies to increase their returns. What they have been doing better is a little better at capital allocation. They've been selling some of these cross shareholdings and they've been using some of these proceeds to buy back shares because Japanese companies are categorically overcapitalized. They have too much cash on their balance sheet and cash earns zero in Japan. So now they're started, we're starting to see more dividends, more stock buybacks. This part is getting better. But remember, return on equity is a fraction. The numerator is profits. The denominator is capital. They're getting a little better with capital. They need to work on that numerator. They need higher margins. They need to be running their businesses in a more efficient manner so they can catch up with the rest of the world. Yeah. It's happening, but it's slow. It's like watching a turtle. <laughs> uh, next time, maybe we'll talk about uh, the tug of war between Japan and China uh, and maybe some favorite names within the country. David, thanks. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Yeah. Bonwin, Japan helps helps fit your acronym together, right? Yeah, we got two. Two of the four here. Yes. Digi, Digs. <laughs> Some of them wanted Digi, Digs, S for small caps. Um, listen, I, I, I think there's, uh, what he mentioned is that the fact that the valuation is half of what it used to be, and the fact that you don't have this corporate cross-selling or cross-buying means that they're held accountable. And the reason why I think there's continued upside is because, one, it's still a developed market, and as we've all talked about how levitated this, this domestic market has been, uh, we've looked at Europe, you want to look at another developed market, a lot of cash on balance. It does give you some margin of safety, even if it doesn't give you the, the debt field growth that you might want to see. They still have some demographic issues to work out. 100% on, right? to work out. I mean, I think in terms of the demographic issues, I think the time for working them out is long gone. I mean, they have a lot of problems there on that side of the equation. With that said, can you still own these names? Like the EWJ, Dan just showed me a chart, but the EWJ, which closed at 68, probably still has a little bit of room here. When I say a little bit, maybe up to 73. So keep an eye on that, but keep an eye on the cross there, Carl. Coming up tonight, it wasn't just NVIDIA today. A big move out of Moderna on the back of earnings. A surprise out of that report had investors jumping in. And a dining comeback. Wingstop, Cheesecake Factory riding on their earnings beats. We'll do a dig into the new dining trends. And during February, we are celebrating Black Heritage. This is CNBC's senior personal finance correspondent, Sharon Epperson. Black-owned businesses grew almost 5% from 2019 to 2020 according to the most recent government data. That's lower than Hispanic and Asian American business growth. Experts say more action is needed to further these advances. Celebrating Black Heritage, I'm Sharon Epperson. Welcome back to Fast Money. Moderna, a big move higher today. The pharma stock surging nearly 14% after posting a surprise quarterly profit despite COVID vaccine sales plunging. Also reiterating its full year 24 sales guide of roughly $4 billion. Shares still down more than 35% in the last year. Uh, ben Sell on with the guys on Squawk today. I saw that. So, and Jamie Mock talked about year of execution or something like that. You know what? If he's right, this stock might be still worth a look despite the move you had today. So it's been very difficult to own. There have been other big cap pharma names that have obviously done extraordinarily well. This is not one of them. However, if they start to execute like they said, this stock, I think, is really attractive at these levels. Any thoughts about uh, the 
pipeline? It's more attractive at these levels. I, I think, listen, I think the perception around the stock was that it was purely focused around COVID vaccines. So I think any diversification from that single you know, revenue stream is, is positive for the stock. It's hard for me, given the alternatives in the space, to, to deploy capital here, though. He was still this morning uh, answering questions from Joe about vaccine safety, for example. Oh, is he challenging yeah, him? Yeah, or, yeah or a no? little bit. Yeah. Um, it worked. Yeah. Yeah. I'm probably more of a Pfizer guy here. <laughs> I think that's what I've got, too. <laughs> when we come back, uh, could Buffalo Wings and Cheesecake be just what your portfolio needs? Big earnings moves out of Wingstop and Cake today. How consumers are picking and choosing in the restaurant space. And then here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim's chatting exclusively with the CEO of PG&E. You can catch that full interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. More Fast Money in the meantime, in two minutes. Welcome back to Fast Money. Some big gains on the menu. Wingstop soaring almost 8%, hitting a record high today, now up 30% just this year. Cake also serving up some profits, shares up more than 3% today. Our Kate Rogers has the dish on some of these hot stocks and the mm. trends within the restaurant space, Kate. Hey there, Carl. Yeah, those two restaurants getting a nice pop after earnings yesterday. We'll start with Wingstop. As you mentioned, that stock closing up almost 8%, hitting an all-time high. The company reporting a very impressive same-store sales growth number, up 21.2% in its domestic stores in Q4, up more than 18% in the full year for 2023. It's doing so well in part thanks to higher transaction volume, which is a rarity in the restaurant industry. Wing execs noting that consumers, of course, are looking for both quality and value. It is prioritizing that moving ahead and seeing continued improvements as it has been disciplined with its price increases. And then over to Cheesecake Factory, also reporting better than expected same-store sales, up 2.5%. That stock closing higher by more than 3% today. Analysts at Gordon Haskett noting that the company has seen menu pricing moderate as inflation has begun to start uh, coming down. Cake's menu pricing went from 10.4% in Q1 to 7.3% in the most recent quarter. It said this comes, of course, as CPI reports have noted grocery prices coming down much faster than restaurant menu prices. So that means that consumers will be more particular about when and how they spend. Casual names do tend to be pricier for the consumer than fast food or QSR like Wing. Back over to you. Uh, pretty interesting, Kate. Thank you. It's been interesting, Dan, to look at the cost of food from home or food yeah. at home versus food away. I mean, yeah. the spread is at a multi-decade high, I think. It is. And, you know, one of the things we spend a lot of time, Carl, because we know you watch the show most nights. I mean, we're talking about these GLP-1s and the effects on restaurants, on, on, on budgets at, uh, you know, grocery and the like. And there was a couple headlines that caught my eye today. Here was one. It was a survey that found that the Ozempic effect gives sweet green a boost, which is kind of interesting. That. I saw that. And then like Nestle, which you would associate not with, with, you know, demand for these sorts of things, but they say you basically drugs, demand for nutrition products. So they have a wing there. So it's like all parts of this, you know, like uh, trade are being affected. And it's really hard to kind of figure out how they're going to be affected. But these restaurant stocks don't seem to uh, seem to be bothered too much by it. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd probably stick around the, the fast or fast casual around the trade down narrative. Now, I hear Dan's point about um, the GLP ones. Clearly, you're going to see some flows there. But just from the overarching economics, you talked about the spread between eating, eating at home and eating out. And I just think that that probably isn't sustainable in terms of that spread kind of uh, being able to hold out. But I think McDonald's or, you know, a Shake Shack, something of that nature, Wingstop, that still does give you, a, you know, a perceived quality, but at a price that, that seems to be affordable. It's weird the way the comps are kind of separating between, say, a burger King and a Wendy's in the last few quarters. Without, yes, the have and have nots in the space are extraordinary. But I mean, again, I took the math a couple days in college. I can do this one. Wingstop closed today at $333. It's going to earn 
three dollars a share. Unless it's Wingstop AI and I don't I missed something. <laughs> I mean, it's trading at 111 times. Now, I get, it's, a, it's a great business without question. Their margins are very good. But, you know, again, you try to trade on valuation and things like this happen. That's how you get your face ripped off. But I'm telling you, some point, some point valuation matters. And it's getting close in this name here, Carl. Yeah. Uh, also, I mean, the results were not as strong from the likes of a Jack, uh, for example, Jack in the Box. McDonald's had a downgrade started, at Wendy's today, too. You remember, McDonald's started off this whole earnings season with kind of downbeat yep. um, yeah. results and guidance. So. Yeah, so to cop normalization yeah. and obviously more and, price and the consumer strap that they can't afford. Think about that. When the last time you heard that about McDonald's saying that, you know what, their consumers feel in the pinch in terms of price. I mean, that should be concerning about the economy yeah. as well. As a look at Wendy's, you can see what it's done in the past year. By the way, mark your calendars. Uh, Melissa Lee's documentary, Big Shot, The Ozempic Revolution, premieres a week from today, February 29th, right here on CNBC. Coming up next, your final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn, Bonwin. I don't think the levitation is going to happen forever, and so I'm going with the trade down, McDonald's. McDonald's. Dan? Um, you know, these rates have been going higher. You saw that, right? Like, you know, regional banks don't really like it. I'd be a seller of KRE here. And Guy? There's a Mount Rushmore of many things. There's, there's an actual Mount Rushmore. Yeah, we know this, and right? With the presidents, yeah. like they mm. chiseled. Yeah. But you're getting to the CNBC, the Mount Rushmore of CNBC hosts. Carl's on that Mount Rushmore. And the fact that he spends his Thursday evening with us is humbling. Thank you, CQ. Uh, PSX just continues to grind higher, my man. It's good to see all you guys. We'll see you again soon. Uh, Thanks for watching Fast Money, Mad Money with Jim Cramer. Starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, The ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.